Well, dear friends, I'm sure that many, if not all of us, have been to a wedding at some stage in our lives. And a wedding is a very special day. They often call it the happiest day of your life. But contrary to what some people might think, the wedding isn't about the dress. It's not about the food. It's not about the cars. It's not about who makes the guest list. What makes a wedding special is that two people are coming together and committing to each other in a covenant of marriage. And that's what a wedding is. Well, the Song of Solomon is a love story. It speaks about a bridegroom and it speaks about a bride. Many people come to the Song of Solomon and they think it's about Solomon and the Shunammite. Or they perhaps take other interpretations as well. I take the interpretation that this book is about Christ and his bride. Christ is the heavenly bridegroom and the bride is the church. Not the buildings, but the people who make up the church. Every single believer is part of a group known as the church. And I believe the Song of Solomon is speaking about the marriage of the Lord Jesus Christ, the heavenly bridegroom, to his bride, the church. And we read a little of this in Revelation chapter 19 earlier. So here we have the wedding uh, which signifies the love story between Christ and his people. And this is a love story that is not confined to a few years here on earth. It's not a love story that will one day have a tragic and terrible ending. It's not a love story that will one day be ended by death. This is a love story. And this is a marriage that will continue from this life into the next and throughout all eternity. Well, as we come to verse 3, the bride is describing her bridegroom. That is the church, or we can make it even more personal, the believer, the individual believer who is part of the church is describing her husband-to-be, her bridegroom. And she is describing the blessings that she receives from Christ. Now, the Song of Solomon is very different from the other books of the Bible. In the Bible, you have history books. You have prophecy books. Well, the Song of Solomon is an allegory. Well, yeah, maybe are having flashbacks to your English class at school whenever you had to learn what an allegory was. Well, an allegory is describing something using word pictures. If you've ever read the book, the Pilgrim's Progress, a tremendous book. It gives the allegory of a Christian life. Well, here we have the bride or the believer describing Christ, and it uses the imagery of an apple tree. So here we have the believer or the church describing Christ as an apple tree and describing all the blessings that she receives from Christ. Now, we can often think of the blessings that we receive from Christ and we receive many blessings from him. But it would be wrong of us just to think about Christ for what he can give us. And not think about who he is. Or how special and precious he himself is. Let me give an illustration. Imagine there was a woman. And she met a prince. And she wanted to marry the prince. Not because she loved the prince. 
but because she wanted the title of a princess, because she wanted to live in a castle, because she didn't want to have to work and she wanted everything provided for her, because she wanted fame and recognition throughout the world as being a princess. Well, if if that woman were to marry that prince just because of what he could give her, we might say, well, she doesn't love him. She's only after him for what she can get from him. And so it is, dear friend. Many people want Christ because they've got problems, because they've got health problems, because they've got money problems, because they have problems in their work and problems in their life. And they think that Jesus Christ will just come and be that big massive bandage to fix all the problems in their life. Now, yes, of course, Christ does give to us many benefits and blessings. But we shouldn't love Christ solely for what he could give us. We should love him whether he were to give us salvation and redemption or not. To love Christ solely for what he could give us is nothing short of a form of prostitution, really. Loving or wanting somebody only for what they can give you. We should love the person of Christ. Just as the bride loves the person of her husband, so we should love Christ for who he is. Well, let's think today of the blessings of Christ to a believer. And I've only three headings to leave with you. First of all, uh, let us note the splendor of Christ. In verse 3, we are told of the appearance of Christ. As the apple tree among the trees of the wood. Now, the apple tree is not the tallest tree in a forest. Imagine you have a forest full of the variety of different trees, and the apple tree is there in the middle. You wouldn't say the apple tree is the tallest tree. You wouldn't say it's the widest tree. In fact, you would probably say it's not even the most attractive tree. Well, what would make that apple tree stand out for you in the forest? Well, it would stand out in its appearance because it has something for you. It has provision for you. Oh, you could cut down other trees and they would be good for making a house. They would be good for firewood. They might be good for the flowers or the seeds or something like that. But the apple tree stands out because it has provision immediately available for you. It has something to nourish and refresh your body. You could walk through a forest of trees and the apple tree could stand out as something that has, as a tree that has something readily available for you. And so the bride is saying here that her, her husband-to-be stands out amongst all the other sons. His appearance stands out for her above everybody else. And so it is for the believer above everybody else that there is in the world, Christ should stand out. He should jump out for us. We might be humble to meet royalty or to meet political leaders. We might have the opportunity to to meet certain celebrities in life, but Christ should shine above the rest of all those. Just as the apple tree stands out among all the other trees, so for the believer who loves Christ, he should stand out. But what does the believer see in Christ? They see that he is most pleasant to us. We see that he has loved us with an everlasting love. We see that he loved us so much that he came into this world to give himself on our behalf on the cross of Calvary. The believer sees that Christ is full of grace towards us. Oh, there's many a husband 
loses patience with their wives, walks out, abandons them. Many uh, a wedding is called off before the wedding day due to tensions. But Christ, no, he is full of compassion towards his bride. He has promised never to leave her or to forsake her. He has promised to love her eternally and that she will forever be his bride. Of course, he has provision for us. We should never despise the provision that Christ gives to us. And he gives to us something that we desperately need. Something that you could never obtain from anybody else. He gives to you the forgiveness of sins. You and I are born into this world with a great and terrible problem. We could describe it as a burden on our back, as Pilgrim had in the Pilgrim's Progress. A burden that we desperately need to get rid of, and it's the burden of sin. And we can't remove it ourselves. We can't shake it off our back ourselves. Should we gather a thousand people to pull this burden of sin off our back, we could never do it. There's only one person who can remove the burden of sin from our lives, and that's Christ. And that's what he did. He took that burden of sin upon himself at the cross of Calvary. He bore that burden at the cross so you and I can have that burden removed and we can enter in to the celestial city of Emmanuel's land. He gives to us forgiveness. That's something we need. Forgiveness is something we we struggle to do with our fellow men. Even if we say we forgive them, there's still always that that niggling uh, thought at the back of our minds, remembering what they did to us. But whenever the Lord Jesus Christ gives forgiveness to his people, this is what he says. Their sins and transgressions will I remember no more. Not because he's forgetful, but because he chooses to forget. He says, I will remove thy transgressions from thee as far as the east is from the west. I will put them in the sea of my forgetfulness. That's what Christ gives to his people. The benefits of redemption are forgiveness and peace with God. No more fighting with God. No more running away from God. Restored to God. Peace with God. To our souls, the world is a forest of barren trees. Oh, you have the tree of humanism. You have the tree of carnal pleasure. You have the tree of entertainment. You have the tree of self-righteousness. You have the tree of good works. You have the tree of, I will do it my way. But to the believer, they don't want those trees. They want the one tree that stands out in the middle that is more beautiful than any other tree in the forest to them. The tree of Christ. He's beautiful in his appearance. Revelation 2 verse 7. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life. One of the titles and names of Christ in the Bible is the tree of life. Adam in the garden he ate of the tree of death. Not just for himself but for us. We die today because Adam ate of the tree of death. But we are told that Christ is the tree of life. We can come to the tree of life and we can have life, abundant life, eternal life, because Christ gives it to all of his people. Sadly, many people don't want the tree of life. They want one of the other trees of the forest, the tree of worldliness, the tree of self-happiness. They don't want the tree of life. But this is the tree that God has given to us. 
And it's the only tree. There's no other way to God and heaven but by Christ. Well, to the physical eye, the appearance of Christ is nothing of significant. I don't say that irreverently. But whenever the Lord Jesus Christ walked on this earth, people didn't take notice of him. He didn't commence his ministry until he was around 30 years of age. And people just looked at him as a a babe, a boy, a young man, a man. They didn't see there was no beauty in him that they would desire him. Isaiah 53 verse 2 says that he hath no form nor comeliness. And when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ didn't stand out for his physical appearance. That's not what makes him attractive to the believer. It's the inner beauty that Christ has. Men followed Christ because they were impressed by what he could do, the miracles that he could do, the feeding of the 5,000, the raising of the dead. But yet whenever Christ preached a sermon to them, they said, these things are hard. Who can hear them? And they walked away from him. They didn't want his teaching. They didn't want to be in his presence. They didn't want to gaze uh, uh, upon uh, the, the God-man in the flesh and hear the words communicated to him. But the believer is one who delights in Christ, not because of his physical appearance, but because of who he is. The believer will say like Peter, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. As Thomas, we will proclaim him to be my Lord and my God. The unbeliever doesn't see the beauty of Christ. And we only have to look at the world to observe this. The unbeliever mocks Christ. They blaspheme his name. They curse him. They make fun of him. You can barely get through a television program today without some irreverent note to Christ. No, the believer doesn't look at Christ like the unregenerate, they see him as being altogether lovely. They say, this is my beloved, this is my friend. The believer also gives their approval of Christ. Verse 3, so is my beloved among the sons. This is the believer approving of Christ as her bridegroom, saying, this is the one whom my soul loves. This is the one whom I want. Yes, there have been thousands of other men that I have seen in the world, but this is the man for me. And so the believer is one who has said, I've looked at the world. I've seen the vanity of religion. I've seen the emptiness of satisfying myself with all the carnal pleasures of this life. And they don't satisfy and they don't make me happy. But Christ He's the one my soul loves. He's the one who will satisfy me. Away with money. Away with wealth. Away with pleasure. Give me Christ. That's who I want. Whenever the Lord Jesus Christ commenced his ministry, there were Greeks who came to see him. And they walked into the midst of a crowd of Jews. And they came to Philip and said, Sir, we would see Jesus. And Philip thought, well, Christ will not want to see these Greeks. He'll not want to see them. But he came and he asked Andrew. And Andrew said, bring them to Christ. There were those who were fearful that Christ wouldn't want them. But Christ wants sinners to come to him. Those Greeks were maybe thinking, he'll not look favorably upon us because we're Gentiles. But he did. And so Christ receives all who call upon him. 
There's the approval of Christ. But notice the expression that the believer uses about Christ. She calls him my beloved. Christ is the beloved of his people. He's not an acquaintance. He's not an associate. He's not a neighbor. He's a beloved. And there's only the, it is only the bride that can say that about her husband. I would venture today that there would be many wives here would get jealous if uh, other ladies in the church started calling your husband their beloved. You would say, no, he's not your beloved. Although some days you might be glad to get rid of him. But um, you, might be, you might take offense and say, no, he's not your beloved. He's my beloved. And so the believer is one who has that personal and intimate connection that Christ is my beloved. He's mine. I love him with all of my heart. I can't be without him. I'm not looking for many beloveds. I only want one. And I only want Christ. And so it is, dear friend. You and I, we can't have many beloveds. We can't have many husbands. We can't have many who we can set our affections upon. Christ is to be the desire of our hearts, the one whom our souls love. So we've thought of the appearance, or sorry, we've thought of the splendor of Christ. Secondly, this morning, let us think of the shadow of Christ. Verse 3, I sat down under his shadow with great delight. Now, three things that the shadow of Christ gives to a believer. The first is rest. Anybody who's traveled in the heat will understand the simple illustration that whenever you're walking in the heat of the day and you start to feel the effects of that heat, you start to look for a shadow so that you can get uh, sit under that shadow. The heat will drain your energy. It'll cause tiredness. It might even lead to sickness. The weary traveler looks for shade and for coolness. I remember many years ago when I was on a holiday in Cyprus, we were woke up by the builders working on uh, houses next to us about four or five in the morning because they got there to do their work early before the heat of the day. And then they came back in the cool of the evening. They took rest during the heat of the day and found shade. Well, so for the one who is weary in the heat of sin, for the one who is that weary traveler through this world, they need to find rest. And that's what Christ does. He gives rest to his people under his shadow. But dear friends, I have to say today, Christ is the only rest. There's not many places of rest for the sinner. Christ is the only place of refuge. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He promises rest to the sinner. Come to him, and you will find rest. He revives the weary traveler. He washes off their filthy dirt of sin. He makes them clean. He he preserves them. And he prevents them from fainting and falling. The Sabbath day is a symbol of Christ's rest. This one day in the week has been set aside as a symbol of the rest that Christ gives. But notice the actions of the bride. She says, I sat under his shadow. She didn't pass by under the shadow. Some people do that. They come and sit under his shadow for a little season until their life gets a little better, until they've had just enough religion to satisfy themselves and soothe their conscience. No, the believer sits under his shadow. She abides under his shadow. 
She's not the wife who comes back and forward to her husband whenever it suits her. No, she's constantly there. So the believer is one who loves to be under the shadow of Christ. Like Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus or John leaning upon the Savior's bosom. That is where the believer loves to be. So there's rest. Secondly, there's protection. The leaves of the trees protect from the rays of the sun. The sun can cause harmful burns. It can dehydrate us. But under the shadow of the tree, you're safe. You're protected. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ protects his people. He protects his people from the wrath of God that is due to them for their sins. It should be the believer facing the wrath of God for their sin. But Christ protects his people. He protects his people from the fiery darts of the wicked. He has bruised Satan's head. He gathers his people into his kingdom. And he's the only one who can protect us. But there's all, thirdly, there's also coolness. There's rest, protection, and coolness. Whenever you find shade, you immediately find coolness. The heat cannot get to you the same way. You enjoy relief from the heat. You enjoy the pleasantness of the cool, and you desire to stay there. Well, why is this shadow possible? Why is it possible for you and I to have a shadow to come and sit under? Well, this shadow is only possible because the Lord Jesus Christ took his place upon another tree. He took his place upon a tree which offered him no rest because on that tree he suffered at the hands of God for sin. The Bible says, He who knew no sin was made to be sin for us. Christ had no rest on the cross. His Father made him to be sin for us. He was on a tree which offered him no protection. The Father withdrew himself from the Son. The only time in history where the union of the Godhead was temporarily suspended. For those three hours, the Father withdrew from the Son. Christ had no protection at all. He was made to be sin, and he endured the wrath of God. And this tree on Calvary offered him no coolness, no coolness from hell's flames, no coolness from God's judgment. Such was his agony that he cried out, My God, my God. Why hast thou forsaken me? Well, the believer can come under Christ, the tree, because of the tree that Christ hung upon for the believer. This pilgrimage would make the believer hot and weary. Sin would often tempt us and we would feel its heat. We would often feel like the world is a furnace of iniquity from which we need relief. And Christ is the place where we find rest, protection, and coolness. Well, thirdly, and finally this morning, we've thought of the splendor of Christ, the shadow of Christ. Now let us note the sweetness of Christ. Verse 3, His fruit was sweet to my taste. Notice, first of all, the provision. If the apple tree had no fruit, well, it would be a barren tree to benefit man. It needs to feed him. The food needs to be nourishing and not harmful. It needs to be sweet provision. And the apple tree provides for man. The man doesn't have to scale the tree and get 10 feet up in the air in order, risking his life to get fruit. No, 
Quite often the apple tree will drop its provision on the ground. All man has to do is come and take and receive. And that's what Christ does for his people. We're not told that we have to scale mountains. We're not told we have to live a life of holiness for 20 years before we will be accepted by him. We're not told that we have to fulfill a list of a thousand rules. No, the Lord Jesus Christ says, come, come to me. Repent of your sins. Believe the gospels or the gospel and I will receive you. And he has promised, he that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. So salvation is provided for man. All man has to do is come and receive it freely. Christ has the provision for man. But what sweetness does Christ provide? I'm sure we are all familiar with the sweetness of the apple. It's one of the sweetest fruits that there is. Well, Christ provides the sweetness of grace. He has promised, my grace is sufficient for you. He says, I will be with you always, even on to the end of the world. He has promised never to leave us nor to forsake us. He has promised there is no trial that is too great that will ever destroy us or to destroy our faith. He has promised mercy. Now, the difference between grace and mercy is this. Mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. Grace is God giving us what we do not deserve. And we receive mercy. To know that God has removed the judgment from us. To know that there is no condemnation for the believer. The believer can lay his head on the pillow tonight knowing that if they don't wake up in the morning on this earth, they'll open their eyes in Emmanuel's land. And for that the believer has no fear or worries. The unbeliever doesn't have that. The unbeliever who in his very deathbed is about to pass into eternity, has no comfort, no peace. The believer has the grace and mercy of Christ provided for them. The believer has joy. doesn't mean our life will be without problems, but we have joy knowing that Christ is our husband, that he has redeemed us to himself. 1 Peter 2 verse 3 The apostle says, ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Dear believer, can you not say that today? That the Lord, that you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. That that has been your experience throughout life. So there's provision. Notice also there's pleasantness. The emotion of the bride to be under the shadow of her bridegroom is this. Delight. I sat down under his shadow, not just with delight, but great delight. Because that's where the believer wants to be, in the presence of Christ. They will mourn the busyness of their life that keeps him out of their presence. They will lament all those times whenever they they indulge in, in vanity rather than being in the presence of their blessed Redeemer. Christ is a delight to his people. And if Christ is a delight to us, let me say this in closing. The communion table ought to be a delight to us as well. We don't come and sit around the table because it's a religious duty that we have to do to be a Christian. We come around this table because Christ is there and we delight to be with him. One of the marks of a Christian is they want to be in the places where Christ is. 
They'll want to be at the morning service, the evening service, because Christ is present in the preaching of the word. They'll want to be at the prayer meeting whenever there's communion with him. They'll want to be around the Lord's table because Christ is there. Now, he's not physically present in the emblems, don't misunderstand me, but he's present with his people. He says, this do in remembrance of me. He doesn't say, take it or leave it. He says, do it. If you're one of my people, be here. Meet with me around this table for a few moments. Meet with me. Dear friend, as we come to a close today, the bride says of her bridegroom, as the apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among the sons. Can I ask this morning, is Christ your beloved? You've heard how he is the beloved of his church. You've heard how he is precious to his people. Can I ask, are you one of those people this morning? Can you say, Christ is my beloved and I am his? If you are, dear friend, Christ welcomes you around this table. He bids you to come. Let us pray.